I uh, have a confession to make to you. It's not a bad sort of confession, but um, you know, I am a. I, I turned fifty this past year, and I, I am as hungry spiritually as I've ever been. It's the strangest thing. I'm. I am. I just my appetite for. God and Jesus Christ and his word and gospel truth, the word of God is just growing and growing. And uh, I just thank God for that. And back when I was a teenager, I had appetites too for food, cars, girls, sports, winning at everything. But my appetite for Jesus was pretty puny back then. So I just tell you that so that you know that God can change lives. God transforms people's lives. He really does. And he's, he's changing mine. And uh, I just, I want you to know, I love bringing the word of God to you on weekends. I love it. Now, now, we believe around here in team teaching because we think God's people need to hear God's word through a variety of personalities. I almost said multiple personalities. That doesn't sound very good. A variety of personalities. But I absolutely love bringing God's word to you. Last night, I loved it so much, I preached for an hour to the Saturday night crew. And at the end, I thought, you know, I probably ought to cut this sermon in half and do it in two weeks. So relax, okay? I won't, we won't do that this morning. But we're opening this new year with a new series called Disciples. Disciples. And I don't know what mental image comes to your mind when I say the word disciple. Is it some guy in a beard with robes, sandals, kind of walking along to the seashore there. Well, that's kind of what it was in the first century. But that term disciple means learner or follower. And it was a term that emerged in that Jewish culture, and they would have been very familiar with disciples. A disciple was someone who wanted to learn so badly that they would attach themselves to a teacher, to a rabbi, they were called. And that disciple would follow that rabbi around. And so, you know, you would see these rabbis going around with a pack a cluster, a group of their disciples. And the rabbi would be the primary influence in the life of each of his disciples. His life and his teaching would shape and form the whole life of his disciples. Now, Jesus had disciples. He was viewed as a rabbi, and he trained 12 disciples while he was here over the course of three years. Of course, one of them defected on him. And so he trained these men. And his requirements for being his disciple were very high. Have you ever read about those? I mean, he said things like, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Uh, Unless you give up claim to everything you have and hate your father and mother, unless you lose your life for me and the gospel, you can't be my disciple. The bar was very, very, very high. And Jesus apparently felt that he was worth living and dying for. I have a definition, a working definition of disciple that I I really like, and I'll share it with you, and it's this. A disciple is a believer who is increasingly treasuring Jesus and his gospel above all else. That's really what, what a disciple is. It's a process, isn't it? It's a believer who is increasingly treasuring Jesus and his gospel above everything else. If you want to aim your life at something, aim it at that, being a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, this is part one of this new series, and the Holy Spirit kind of pulled a fast one on me. I was going one direction, but 
I feel compelled to go in a, in a slightly different direction because I've realized that when it comes to this notion of being all in with Jesus, of being one of his disciples, that we all come from different places. That Jesus calls us to be devoted to him and, and to give him our allegiance, but when, when he finds us, we're in different places. And so I want us to look this morning at, this, at a story Jesus told that's often called the parable of the prodigal son because it sheds some light on the places that we come from when he calls us. I actually prefer to call it the parable of the lost sons. Two sons, both lost. Now, you know, Jesus was a superb storyteller, wasn't he? The absolute best storyteller of all time. And this story, along with the parable of the Good Samaritan, are two of the most famous and beloved stories of all time. In fact, you could argue that this story... The parable of the prodigal son might be the most famous, most beloved story ever told in the history of the world. Shakespeare wrote plays based on it. Rembrandt painted a painting uh, based on this story. There it is. It's a wonderful story. It was the longest parable Jesus ever told. And it's the story of an amazing dad and his amazing love for his boys. And as we look at it, hopefully with eyes wide open this morning, we're going to see that it speaks to the place where we are when God calls us. We're going to see ourselves in the story. So I want to read the story first. Uh, There's a, a study outline in your worship folder you can pull out, and then we'll seek to understand it. We'll walk through it together. So first, the context. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what was going on. Kind of setting the scene here for this parable. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So they did not appreciate the company, the kind of company that Jesus was keeping. So, verse 3, he told them this parable. He actually told them three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, where the sheep is found and there's great rejoicing. The parable of the lost coin where a coin is misplaced and then found, and there's great rejoicing, and then this parable, the parable of the lost sons. Let me read it for you, Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Actually, he probably said it, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. By the way, that's what the word prodigal means, to squander away your resources, to waste them. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's not the end of the story. There's another son. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on? And he, the servant, said to him, Well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And that's how the story ends, kind of an abrupt ending there. Jesus leaves it open-ended. So let's walk through this together. First, the characters. There was a man who had two sons. We begin with a father, a good father, who by all accounts represents who? God, the Father in heaven, God himself. Well, this father in the story evidently was middle-aged. He had two sons who were fairly grown. We're not sure about whether there was a wife or a mom in the picture, not mentioned. So a Jewish dad who appears to be a godly, conscientious, and unselfish father. Interestingly, though, despite being a good dad, his two sons aren't on the right track. Now, some people will contend and will tell you that good parents always have good kids, and that if you have a kid who's not turning out very well, it must be the parent's fault. Well, that's not the case here. I don't believe that anymore myself. Some parents, unfortunately, do sow seeds of sin and death into the hearts of their children, and they reap that harvest later. But there are godly parents who love Jesus Christ who have rebellious or Pharisees for children. It does happen. It happened to this man, who by all accounts was a great dad. Something that's overlooked often about this man is that he was a good businessman. He's not like a lot of fathers in our day who spend everything they earn on themselves and don't care for their families. This man built up an estate, presumably through hard work and diligence and wise investing and solid decisions. He's accumulated a sizable estate that will one day go to his sons as an inheritance. Wise fathers do that. Proverbs tells us that a wise father leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. And so dads, good dads, don't just spend all their money on themselves accumulating a bunch of toys. They think about the future. They plan ahead. They think about their children and grandchildren. If their grandkids want to go start a church one day, they'll be the first to write a check out so that that can happen or to pay for the down payment on a home for your kids or help with college tuition. Wise fathers leave an inheritance for their children. In that culture, it was an agricultural setting. We can assume the father's wealth was mostly tied up in what? His land and his fields and his 
crops. And in that culture, the amount of land you owned was a measure of your status in the community and how well thought of and respected you were. And land, as you know, would get passed down from generation to generation. So from great-grandpa to grandpa to dad to you, and then you'd pass it down to your children. And it would provide you with your sustenance. And one day your children would take over ownership of the land and and the whole enterprise. This father owned sufficient land to have fields where crops were grown. He had a number of servants who worked for him, so presumably it was a pretty good-sized estate. As we read through the story, we learn also that this father was compassionate and affectionate. He hugs and kisses his son when his son comes home. You know, dads need to learn how to be appropriately affectionate with their kids. Maybe you grew up in a home where your dad didn't shower you with affection, so it feels awkward and weird for you to hug your kids or kiss your daughters or sons, but you can learn that. You don't have to continue that heritage. You can break that. I'm talking about appropriate affection with both your daughters and your sons, hugging them, kissing them, I saw my dad last week. He turns 80 next month. I hugged him and kissed him when I saw him. I still hug and kiss my boys. Now, they squirm at times. They don't like it that much. And I'm talking about appropriate, you know, like if they go out on the football field and run and make a first down, you don't run out on the field and plant a big kiss on their cheek. I mean, (laughs) that's not acceptable at all. But appropriate affection. Dads need to learn how to love their kids' moms and create a safe and secure environment for their kids to grow up in. Kids who grow up with distant fathers, disinterested fathers, always suffer. Always suffer. Well, in his interactions with his sons, we see that this father didn't appear to be controlling, harsh, heavy-handed, domineering. With his younger son, he actually submits to the son's request, which was really a demand. It was outrageous, without any belittling or berating. With his older son especially, we see in this father the self-restraint that comes with maturity. He pleads with him rather than issuing commands or orders. And so his tone with his boys is one of respect. He's acknowledged that his little guys, his little fellows, have grown up. And they're now young men. And he has adjusted and adapted to that. And he's treating them accordingly which is an important thing to do as our kids move into different life stages. So here's a wise, diligent Jewish father. He's created a safe and healthy environment for his family to be brought up in. He's taught his kids the value of hard work. He's entrusted them with a measure of responsibility at each stage. He's tended their hearts with love and compassion. He's a good dad, and he's about to be devastating. This is where we're introduced to the younger son, the rebel, the rebellious teenage son. Verse 12, the younger of the son said to his father one day, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now this guy is like a lot of young guys. He's mature physically. He's able to work out in the fields and so forth, but he's not mature emotionally or mentally or spiritually. Where the story picks up, we see this kid deciding that he has had enough of dad, he's had enough of home, he's had enough of working out in the field every day with his brother. He wants freedom. He wants to be his own man. So what does he do? He does something very brash. 
He goes to his dad one day and says, Dad, I want what's coming to me and I want it now. He dishonors his father. I mean, that was tantamount to saying his, to his dad, looking his dad in the eye and saying, I wish you were dead because you didn't receive an inheritance until your father had passed on. And this guy's saying, I want it. I want what's coming to me and I want it now, dad. I got plans, dad. I'm going somewhere. My problem is I don't have funds. And the complicating variable in my life is that you're still alive. And so the best case scenario for me is that if you were dead, then I could have what's coming to me. The second best case scenario is if you would liquidate your assets and give me the third, one-third of the estate that is due to me. See, the older brother would get a double portion, two-thirds, because he was expected to maintain things after the father moved on. So the younger son would have expected a third. And that's what this son demanded. I got plans, Dad. I want to blow this joint. I want to move to the city. I want freedom. I want to experience all that is out there. So give me my share now, and I'm out of here. Interestingly, the next verse says, And he, the father, divided his property between them. It's shocking to me to note that the father actually grants his son's demand. Now, we could debate whether or not that was good parenting, but it's essential to the point that Jesus wanted to make in telling this story. Now, I have an opinion. I think that that father apparently realized that this younger son was one who needed to find things out for himself. Now, you know, don't you, that there are some kids who need to find things out for themselves. And you're a parent, and you've raised them, and you've been talking to them saying, I can save you a lot of heartache here. I've been there. Listen to me. Listen to dad. Listen to mom. And you're like Lucy's teacher just going, wah, 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 wah. And their eyes are glazed over, and you're talking harder and faster and longer, and they'll have none of it because they're the kind of kid that just has to find out for themselves. And there are kids like that. There are kids like that. You know, this son had been raised in this Jewish family. He was probably taught the Old Testament law, so he knew it. He'd heard and knew the stories of his ancestors, the children of Israel, and how things went south every time they compromised with the culture, every time they surrendered to the influences and intermarried with foreign women and all that. He knew all that stuff. But knowing it in his head is not enough for him because he feels boxed in. He feels restrained. He feels restricted. He's tired of being at home And the world looks so intriguing to him. It's so full of the promise of fun and pleasure and freedom. And he's got to find out for himself. And I think his dad knew that. So he somehow liquidated his assets and gave his son a bag of money. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. So the younger son takes the money turns his back on his father, and walks away. I need you to feel how the father felt in that moment. Some of you feel that because it's happened to you. Think about dad standing there. You've been dishonored, shamed, and disgraced by your son. He's told you, he's looked you in the eye and said, I wish you were dead. You've decided to give him his share of the inheritance, and he walks away. You're there hoping maybe he'll turn around at least to wave goodbye or... 
If that happened to me, I would be devastated. I'm a dad. I'd be crushed. I I don't know how I would do. The kid, though, he's not crushed. He's happy. He's got a bag full of money. He's taken off. There's a skip in his step because he's finally free. No more people telling me what to do. No more taking orders from dad and mom. No more being assigned chores. No more working out in the fields. No more restrictions. No more rules. He's away from home. He's got money. And he can indulge himself in whatever he wants. And that's exactly what he does. It says he takes a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Be like the guy in our day who receives an inheritance from a rich uncle. And he just goes crazy. He's never had this kind of money before. And he goes out and he buys a classy condo by the beach. And he buys himself a new car. He updates his wardrobe. He purchases a whole bunch of toys. And he starts his new party boy lifestyle with lots of drinking and clubbing and drugs. And he's got girls everywhere. They're coming over to his condo at night and they're staying up all night and breaking commandments and things. And you can click on his Facebook page. You can click on photos and you know what's going on with this guy. It's all there. He's living it up in the big city. He's free to do whatever he wants and indulge every desire and every pleasure until the money runs out. Bummer. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Uh Uh-oh. Like a lot of young guys, he thought, he just assumed the money would always be there. He didn't really think ahead. He didn't really plan ahead. He, He wasn't thinking a whole lot about saving, investing wisely, living within his means. He just spent money like a drunken sailor until one day... He's feeling around in that money bag, and there's nothing there. He's thinking, this is not good. Add to that the fact that right at that same time, famine hits. The equivalent of our economic downturn hits. A double whammy. No money, and the economy's going south. Real estate's down. The condo he bought loses half its value. Gas prices go up. Food prices double. It says he began to be in need. His money bag's empty. He's got no job. So he has to put the condo up for sale. Take a huge loss on it, just like his father did with his assets. He can't afford his car payment any longer, so he puts it on Craigslist. You know, need to sell immediately, best offer. Just need some money. All those cute girls with loose morals don't come by anymore. And his luxurious life starts to spiral downhill. And pretty soon, he's making visits to the local pawn shop. First week, it's his Xbox. Then it's his flat screen. Then he's bringing this and that. He just needs hungry. His stomach's growling. Things go south quickly. No one's going to hire him because he hasn't held a steady job in a while. Plus, with the economy the way it is, there's not much work to be had. He's hungry and becoming desperate. But then he finds someone who is hiring. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
Now, this is a Jewish boy. The only one hiring is this Gentile pig farm owner. This kid's been taught all his life that pigs are dirty, they're nasty, they're unclean. You don't touch them, you don't work with them, you don't eat them. And now this is his job. Do you feel the humiliation? Do you feel the shame? I'm reduced to this because I'm hungry. I got to eat. It says he got so hungry, verse 16, that he longed to be fed with the pig food, the cobs that he was feeding the pigs started to look good to him. You know that's you know you're in bad a bad way. And that starts looking good to you. And no one gave him anything. Where are the friends? Where are all the girlfriends? The the fellow partiers aren't texting him anymore, wanting to get together with him. He's tending pigs. He's alone, hungry, and homeless. In verse 17 it says, But when he came to himself, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants back home have more than enough bread to eat? Here I am perishing with hunger. You could call this his aha moment. (laughs) And so often it happens when someone is at the bottom, doesn't it? When there's nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to look but up. This guy's hit bottom. He's in a pig pen. He's a mess. And some people have to get there. Do you know that? Some people have to get there. It happened to a friend of mine in his dorm apartment one night, pulling a revolver, a loaded gun, out of his desk drawer, getting ready to take his life when the light came on. And he came to himself, and God spared his life. That's what happened to this kid. It says he came to himself. Another translation says he came to his senses. Maybe he kind of stood back and said, look at me. I'm a, I'm a mess. Not only that, I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Back, ho- back at home, Dad has hired servants that live better than I'm living. Sure, they have to work for it, but at least they have food in their stomach. The desperation of his situation and the memories of what it was like back home all come crashing in on his brain. And just like that, repentance is given to him. Repentance, as you know, is a change of mind. That's what happened. What used to seem like hell to him, living at home, now seems kind of heavenly as he thinks about it. He makes a decision. Just as he had turned away from his father a few weeks or months before and walked away, he now makes the decision to turn away from that lifestyle and start to take the road back home to dad. And a plan forms in his head. Verse 18, I know what I'll do. I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him. Now, what's he doing? This is confession rehearsal. He's rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say when he gets there. That's not a bad idea, by the way. If you have to have a difficult conversation with someone or confess something, to think it through ahead of time. Because you know that in the moment, pride comes to the rescue. You know that, right? The flesh comes to the rescue. So having it... In your mind already, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's good, isn't it? I've sinned against God and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you treat me as one of your hired servants? I know what I'll do. I'll go back home. That's what he's thinking. 
But I think probably as he thought about it, he thought, hmm, I wonder how that's going to go. I wonder how I'm going to be received, given how I left. Can't you just kind of see him running through the scenarios in his mind, wondering, when I get there, what's going to happen? Maybe I could just offer Dad to be one of his servants. Maybe he'd let me. It would be humiliating, but I'm hungry. He finally musters up the courage and says goodbye to the pigs, goodbye to his boss and his employer. He turns down that road, heading back home. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that tell us? He was looking. He was looking. Maybe every day. You can see the dad out in the fields with his clipboard, right? He's supervising all of his workers out there. But maybe once or twice a day, he'd, he'd look over his shoulder, look down that path. No, not today, I guess. God, watch over my son. Bring him home. Bring him home. Looking, hoping, praying. Maybe he'd been getting periodic reports about his son who was in the far country. Maybe from townspeople or from extended family. Hey, Chuck, man, your boy's doing great. He's really living it up now. Condo, cars, girls, parties. He's got it going on. What a life. Uh, hey, Chuck, your son's fortunes seem to have turned around a little bit. I'm not seeing him driving around as much anymore. I think he's taking the bus now, actually. Wow. Chuck, things have really deteriorated in a hurry. He's not doing well, Chuck. Your boy's not doing well. He's strung out on drugs. He OD'd the other night. He got arrested, spent some time in jail. Hey, man, I think I heard that your son's working down at the pig farm. Chuck, he, he looks bad, man. He's losing weight. He had to go to the clinic to get checked for AIDS. Chuck, I'm praying for your boy. I can just see that dad every day glancing down the path. God, bring my boy home. Bring my son home, God. Please protect him. Please don't let him ruin his life. Please, don't, please keep him alive, God. Please bring him home. Some of you have been there. Not a stretch for you. And then one day, the father looks up. He sees a lone figure down at the end of the path. And he kind of squints. It's like, could that be? The figure walks, gets a little closer, and he goes, I know that walk. I know that walk anywhere. I know that frame. I know the way my son swings his arms when he walks. That's my son. My boy's coming home. This is a good day right now. It's excited. It's a great day. Praise God, my son's coming home. What does he do? It says he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. What a picture. Picture a middle-aged man hiking up his ropes and launching into a full sprint down the road. You need to know how undignified that was in that culture. Grown men just didn't do that. It wasn't culturally acceptable. The only reason a grown man would be running is if he had committed a crime or if someone was chasing after him. They had long robes in those days, long undergarments. If you were going to run, you had to hike all that up like a little schoolgirl and take off. 
And that's what this guy does. He throws all social convention and decorum to the winds and he sprints out towards his son. It says he embraced him and kissed him. And the Greek says he kept kissing him. He kept kissing him. Son, you're home, you're home, you're home. I imagine maybe after hugging and kissing him for a while, he maybe stepped back and kind of sized him up a little bit. Like, man, you don't look so good. You're grimy, you're filthy, you smell like pigs. You know, your clothes are just kind of hanging on your thin frame. You don't look so good. The boy, I imagine, was embarrassed and ashamed. He can probably hardly even look his dad in the eye. But he starts his speech. Remember the one he'd rehearsed. Verse 21, he said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he can't get the phrase out to ask to be a servant because his father will have none of that. None of that. The father is so thrilled to have his son back home that he turns in that moment and yells back at his servants who are still back at the estate. Bring the best robe and put it on my son. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead. I thought he was dead and he's alive again. My son was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. This father is truly amazing. And he's a picture of the father God. He's truly amazing. I've asked myself, what would you do, Steve, in that situation? What would you have done? I ask you who are dads, what would you have done in that situation? Remember, your son disgraced you. He shamed you. He dishonored you. He looked you in the eye and told you he he wished you were dead. He took your money. He turned his back on everything that you stand for. He dishonored you further in the eyes of the townspeople by living a reckless life that would have been totally contrary to how you raised him. And no doubt some of those townspeople were judging you for your parenting because of how he had turned out. What would you have done? You know, there was a provision in the law that if a son did this to his father, he could rightly be disowned by his dad, kicked out of the family. That would have been just. There was another provision that allowed a father to have his son beaten if he should return. Or he could have browbeaten his son with his own words. What a fine son you are. Made me look like a fool. You realize you put me in a no-win situation when you demanded your share of the inheritance? I had to lose, take a loss on my assets to get you that money. Then you go out and make a mockery of me and your mother and drag our family name through the mud. You flaunt your freedom. You go against everything our family stands for. Oh, and now that things got a little hard, you have the audacity to show your face around here again? Why don't you go to your scuzzball friends? Where are they now? told you this would happen if you did this, but did you listen to me? No! You're an idiot. You're a fool. I ought to disown you for good. Do you hear any of that in the father's interaction with his son? Do you hear any of that berating, belittling, condemning? None of it. It's almost scandalous. He's overwhelmed to see his son. He's overjoyed. And without even flinching, He reinstates him back into the family. Bring a robe. Bring a ring. 
The ring was a signet ring that had the seal of the family on it by which you would stamp documents and important papers. The equivalent in our day would be saying this, let's put his name back on our accounts. Let's get him a credit card. Let's give him his old room back in the house. Let's get him a shower. Let's get him some clothes and a haircut. Let's restore his dignity. Our son is home. Let's make him feel part of our family because that's what he is. What a dad. What a gracious father. And then he just kind of goes over the top. He just kind of loses it and goes berserk. You know, his son had already taken him for a bunch of his money, right? But now he's going to blow a whole bunch more money on this son. He's like, okay, we got to celebrate. I need an event coordinator. I need a band. Somebody rent some tents. Let's set the tables up. We're going to have this huge barbecue, and we are going to party because my son has come home. Invite everybody, all of my friends who've been grieving with me since my son disowned me and turned his back and who's been praying for him, invite them. We're just going to have a big-time festive banquet party. It's just amazing. It's party time. Lavish celebration. And it's a good one. What a story. What a story. But you need to know something. The, the people who are actually listening to Jesus tell this story, those Pharisees, remember Jesus was consorting with sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees were standing back saying, we don't like that. They would not have viewed this as a sentimental, tear-jerking story. It probably would have angered them to hear this. They resented Jesus for welcoming sinners and eating with them. And that's what prompted the story. And to hear Jesus tell this story where a Jewish dad welcomes home his rebellious prodigal son without administering any punishment, without exacting the just penalties of the law on his son, that would have confused them and likely angered them. What? That's crazy. And what Jesus was wanting them really to understand was this. Everything you've been taught about how God views sinners and about how to approach God, how sinners approach God, everything you've been taught about that is wrong. That's what he wanted those people to understand through telling this story. You don't get it. You don't get the scandalous nature of the grace that fills the heart of the Father who would welcome a rebellious son home without punishment, without penalty, and reinstate him into the family like that without flinching. You see, in the story, the father represents God and the young rebellious son represents the tax collectors and the sinners who Jesus actually liked to hang around with. It was unthinkable to the religious people of that day. Well, next weekend, we're going to talk about the other brother, the older brother. And it will be poignant for people like me and people like you. But let me give you a few lessons from this story real quick, okay? And I know I've got some numbers down the side, and we don't have that many because I'm not giving you the whole sermon today, okay? Let me give you some words. First word, grace. Grace. What does this story teach us? It teaches us that the heart of the Father is scandalously gracious, that He extends His mercy to those who don't deserve it. 
that good news? <laughs> Every rebel-hearted person within the sound of my voice ought to rejoice in that. Grace. It's a different principle than law. And it's scandalous, really, when you start to understand it. Second word is repentance. This story teaches us the value of repentance. That the way back to the Father's heart and home is always through repentance. It always begins with repentance. He came to his senses. He came to his self. Some of you have prodigal daughters, prodigal sons, prodigal grandchildren. I would urge you to pray tenaciously and never stop praying for God to give them repentance. Don't you long for that day when they come to their senses and they go, what was I thinking? I'm an idiot. I need to go home. Third word is reconciled. That's a good Bible word, reconciled. The father stands ready and eager to receive back lost prodigals, to be reconciled with them. Some of you have a vision of God. You know, when you think of God, you think of him kind of with a furrowed brow and a snarl, like, I just want to catch you doing something wrong. And that'll make me happy. That's not God. He longs to be reconciled with his repentant rebels. Four, humility. Humility. Being reinstated to sonship can't be earned, only received. Remember, the son was going to come back and offer to be a servant. I'll be one of your hired servants. And the father would have none of it. No, 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 no. You don't earn your way into reinstatement as a son. It gets conferred upon you as a gift. Beautiful. So counterintuitive, isn't it? Don't I have to do something? Well, you repented, right? Yeah. But I've made a mess of things. I know, but I'm a gracious father. Welcome. And it takes humility to receive that. And the fifth word is party, like P-A-R-T-Y. Our God is a partying God. You ever think of him like that? Read the end of Revelation. It all ends in a big party like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Our God rejoices and is glad when one sinner repents and comes home. He throws a party in heaven. He invites all the, you know, he is a festive, feasting, celebrating, partying God who loves to find a reason to celebrate. And the reason he loves most is when one of his prodigal sons or daughters comes home. Let that be your picture of your God. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for telling it. Thank you for having Luke write it down so that we could walk through it 20 centuries later. Thank you for what we learn about the Father and about you. There's so many applications to the individuals in this room, Holy Spirit. I just trust you to make the application to dads. Lord, there's dads in this room who needed to hear this message today because something needs to change in their parenting. There's dads who've been prodigals themselves. And their kids know it. And they need to come back to you. There are, there are students in the room who are prodigals in their heart. 
They might be good church kids on the outside, but in their heart they long for the world and the promise that it holds. And Lord, I imagine there are some who are making their way back home to you. Would you take them by the hand and carry them all the way? May we respond to the truth we've heard today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.